Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Inflation is still around 7% in Canada, way above the 2% target. But in raising interest rates, only 0.5% last week, below many of the big banks' estimates that it would raise three quarters of a percent, the Bank of Canada may have signaled that this country is reaching the end of its interest rate raising cycle. Or did it signal that? I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, Financial Post Editor-in-Chief Kevin Carmichael joined me to discuss the state of the economy, where we are, how we got here. Kevin has spent a career reporting on the economy in Canada, as well as the U.S., and he provided context to what's happened in the past two years, explaining both how the economy now is similar to and different from the 1970s, as well as the 2008 timeframe. As always, the interview was edited for clarity and brevity. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me. Happy to be here, Gabe. So last week, when the Bank of Canada raised interest rates by a half point, this was less than many banks had been predicting. And it felt like an inflection point or closer to reaching an inflection point in which the Bank of Canada has clarity about how to get inflation under control, how to get the economy under control. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. Certainly lots of people on Bay Street and Wall Street saw it as a pivot. Saw that word spinning around a lot sort of after the Bank of Canada meeting, uh, describing it as a shift to at least a slower rate of interest rate increases uh, over the near term. They paired the Bank of Canada move, which, as you pointed out, was less than most had thought it would be going into the meeting. So as I say, they paired that with uh, what the Reserve Bank of Australia did a few weeks ago, where they went only a quarter point uh, higher when markets saw them going a half point or perhaps even three quarters of a point, but higher than what the central bank in Australia ultimately did. So yeah, there's a feeling out there that because the central banks around the world, including here in Canada, of course, have just been ratcheting up uh, interest rates so fast that they've gotten almost to what they call the terminal point, And therefore, naturally, you're going to start to slow down the closer you get to sort of that wall that's in front of you. Well, we're used to saying take their foot off the gas. But I suppose in this case, uh, given they're trying to slow down the economy, they're going to ease off on the brakes a little bit. Huh. And I've been thinking about it as, a, you know, they're sort of easing up on the safety brake, but still have to firmly apply to the actual brake. Huh. I guess I'll just add that my own sense is I'm not quite sure that that's Actually, what we saw happen this week, I still think that there's a risk given how far inflation is from the Bank of Canada's target and the target of so many other central banks around the world that some in markets might be getting ahead of themselves, might be over-anticipating the slowdown. The wall is, as we said, naturally closer, so you're going to ease up a little bit. But I'm not quite sure that that means that we're close to an end of the cycle, if that's the way to think about it. Right. Look, the target for Canada is 2%. Inflation is still up around 7%. The Bank of Canada's forecasts don't have it getting back to anything close to the target until the end of next year. Wow. So, yeah, I don't know. Certainly, it's a delicate call for people to make uh, because 
the Bank of Canada also essentially conceded this week that it's going to run right up against recession if we don't, in fact, tip over into one. So, you know, clearly no central banker wants to do that. But the message is crystal clear to me that if they're going to have to choose, they're going to choose to go into a recession if that's what it takes to bring inflation down. Right. There's so much to unpack there. And maybe you can almost break it down two ways. You talked about the market getting ahead of itself. And I'm thinking of investors now who two years ago would have really gotten quite nervous if a central bank in Canada, the U.S., anywhere had raised interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point. This week, it was a half a percentage point, which somehow, even though that's much larger than the past, seemed small because they've been raising it a whole percentage point, four times more than what they would have done in the past. So that's from a market perspective. But then you also have to look at consumers and the rest of the economy where these interest rates also have an impact. And it seems like what you're saying is markets may be thinking that this is sort of the end of a cycle, but the reality is inflation is still quite high. And that's what this is all about. Yeah, no, it's absolutely all about inflation from the central bank's perspective. I think, you know, there's a lot of chatter out there in both the political classes and in the market about how the central banks are going to essentially drive the economy in Canada. But this is happening around the world. So I guess we can just sort of stay focused on Canada as a proxy for what's going on elsewhere. But that essentially the central banks are going to overreact to the fact that they underreacted, if I can put it that way to the inflation surge of, what, a year, a year and a half ago, where they were a little slow to move when inflation clearly started to break from the norm. And look, that could well be the case. The the central banks could well overreact. But if you think about it, central banking works. I mean, they're working with very blunt tools at the end of the day, trying to, you know, navigate very complex systems by essentially moving interest rates up and down. I mean, it's kind of hard you know, to get those moves just right. So the whole business is built on underreacting and overreacting. Right. So, I mean, it's going to be very, very difficult, I guess, at the end of the day for the Bank of Canada to achieve these sort of soft landings that people talk about. So I guess what I see happening from here is that the central banks are going to work with the best information they have and mix that with what they at least think know that works. And what they think they know is that if they raise interest rates high enough, they can crush inflation. And they know from their experience from the 70s and the early 80s that inflation is really bad. So they're going to probably err on the side of bringing inflation down to avoid the kind of protracted pain that economies endured during that period. You mentioned earlier, Gabe, about just the sensitivity that at least we used to think people had when it came to to higher interest rates mm. or changes in the interest rate. And the central banks were very careful to sort of tweak at these quarter point increments. And that, uh, as it's right, it's like a half point increment back then was considered something very big and shocking. Huh. But now, yeah, the, a half point increase is, uh, is almost a disappointment to people. I observed that in some of the stuff that I wrote this week. It's just sort of a great sign to me, at least, on on how much things have changed, where an increase not so long ago would have been seen as a sign of panic. But this week it was seen, well, by some as not taking inflation seriously enough and, you know, by others as a sign that, I don't know, things are getting back to normal. When I think as the governor himself tried to point out that this is you know, still not normal. This is a very big increase. And I think he was trying to remind people that, you know, we don't like to move interest rates this much unless we really, really have to. Right. Hearing all this kind of reminds me of there's that phrase, you've been down so long, it looks like up. I said it's like interest rates have been going up so fast that now they're going up only a little bit. It looks like down, but it's not. 
Well, where does this leave us in terms of both inflation and future interest rate hikes? I don't know, to be honest with you. So I don't, I'll, I'll share what uh, appreciate that. <laughs> what the experts are throwing around and maybe add some of my own interpretation of that. So the Bay Street es- estimates for the Bank of Canada are now in a range of 4% to maybe 4.5%. That's sort of like they, they call, I think I mentioned earlier in our, our conversation, the terminal rate. And that simply means where people assume the Bank of Canada will stop raising interest rates. So after this week, we're at 3.75%. People are sort of anticipating at least another quarter point increase. Feels like it's probably going to have to be a bit more than that. So for the sake of simplicity, let's just go with four and a half. There's still more, though. Yeah. Bottom line is there's still more to come. And the central bank itself made crystal clear that there is more to come. They, They said so explicitly. Wow. Now, you know, as is the case with central bank communication in normal times or otherwise, they're not going to give away exactly what they're going to do, but they said explicitly that rates are going to rise. Wow. So they're going higher. There are already signs that the economy has slowed down quite a bit. So higher interest rates into what is already a slowdown is why people are getting anxious about a recession. But as we've said, you know, inflation is still so far outside the target. And at the end of the day, the Bank of Canada's job is to achieve that 2% target. So if you're an elected technocrat, you've got explicit marching orders to achieve something, well, you're going to do it. That's your job. You don't have the the latitude to freelance and hold off uh, anything or hold back on anything that might keep you from achieving that target. So I think the Bank of Canada is going to go forth and, and attempt to do whatever it needs to do to bring inflation back down and feel comfortable that inflation's trajectory has structurally changed and is, is moving back toward that 2% mark before it lets up on interest rate increases. And, you know, that's making a lot of people in the political classes anxious. But I don't know. The way I look at it is that's on them at this stage. You know, they've, <laughs> they've given the Bank of Canada a particular directive that's held in place for a few decades now and reviewed the, the Bank of Canada's mandate just at the end of last year. So at this stage, if there are things that the politicians want to do to avoid a recession, I think that's going to have to come by way of fiscal policy. Yeah. So just think about this a second. It's the highest pace of inflation in decades. The idea, I guess, behind raising interest rates is make it more expensive for people to borrow money and therefore slow down inflation, slow down everything. I saw a headline recently, one of the banks is predicting that Canadian wealth is set to decline the most we've seen in quite some time. You also mentioned comparing this to the 1970s when inflation really got out of control and central banks had to raise their interest rates into the double digits. Is that the right comparison to go back to the 1970s? That's a good question. It's a question that the governor got this week. Yeah. So yes and no. I mean, yes, in that it's the last time that you know, a North American economy has gone through anything like we're going through now. And much of how we approach monetary policy is kind of built on top of the lessons that were learned from that period. So I think it's obviously good to go back there and do a comparative analysis. Right. But the comparison is imperfect. And I tend to be skeptical of those who lean into that comparison too much. That's because things have changed an awful lot since then. I'll share a couple of examples that the governor himself shared at the press conference this week. He he pointed out two things, that the period of what central bankers call excess demand, but we can just talk about it as, you know, the the heating up of the economy, say, back in that period, went on a long, long time. 
So there was a lot of heat in the economy by the point that you know inflation was really had run away from authorities and it was racing out of, out of control. He pointed out that that's not quite the case this time. I mean, there's a lot of demand in the economy right now, given just the pent-up desire to spend and get out and do things. And after a couple of years of being effectively uh, locked in by the pandemics. Yeah. But that's like kind of a post-pandemic burst that you know might be easier to contain than it was, say, back in the 70s, where you had a long run of big government deficits and just lots of money sort of racing through the economy for a long period of time. So that's one argument against this being a repeat of the 70s. Huh. And the other, uh, which I find the, the most persuasive, is that policy makers have learned a lot since then. And one thing that exists today that didn't exist at that time is an anchor, is something for the public, for, uh, for executives, investors, households to focus on. And that's that 2% target. Back in the 70s, there was basically no target. Huh. That's roughly the same time that the U.S. ended the peg of the U.S. dollar to gold. Huh. So that kind of just unleashed something of, a, of an anchor for economic decision-making at that time. I'm not defending the peg to gold, but the fact that that source of stability was taken away kind of threw the global economy into chaos for a while. We don't have that kind of rudderless system at the moment because the central banks pretty much across the board, have that inflation target. And so that's one of the reasons, of course, that the Bank of Canada is so intent on getting inflation back to that target because it wants to reinforce the fact that we have this sort of foundation stone underpinning economy here in Canada. And I'm pretty sure that Bank of Canada feels an obligation to reinforce that stability. You know, my own view is that they're more likely to overdo it than underdo it. Right. The economy slowing down a bit is pretty much exactly what the Bank of Canada wants. So it's more likely to make sure that that economy is going to slow down rather than risk undoing all it's achieved to this point. Now we're going to pause a minute for a short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, to think the idea that we just came up with this idea of inflation, that it's still that recent, that central banks around the world reached a consensus on that being a benchmark to monitor is telling. We talked about how the 1970s aren't necessarily the best comparison to what's happening today. But 2008, 2009, you know, back then there was also a lot of concern about the future of the economy, but there was a totally different response. How can we sort of understand the differences between now and then? So I think a lot of what we did in response to the pandemic was based on things that policymakers learned, or at least thought they'd learned in the aftermath of the financial crisis. So if you think back to the financial crisis, and even though at the time it felt like the response was unlike anything anyone thought was possible, to an extent that was true, but a lot of the responses still came up short. There was a still a, a hesitancy to go all in. There was still this sort of feeling based on, I think, frankly, the last crisis, the, like the previous crisis, where you know it was really nothing as severe, certainly at least in the North American context, as what went on 
during the financial crisis and ultimately the Great Recession. But the, the last sort of episode that got close to that was sort of the, the sovereign debt uh, issues or, and, and fiscal issues that went on through the 90s where hmm. you know, people got panicky about government's ability to, to finance themselves, right? And so we went through that here, of course, uh, in Canada during the Chrétien Martin years where they went all in on balancing the budget. Right. And things never went off the rails the way they did in 2008, 2009, and certainly the way they did in 2020 with the pandemic. But things were getting dicey. And, you know, as a result of that, you know, they responded with an austerity campaign. Things got better. So the policymaking class came to identify austerity, balanced budgets with prosperity. So it was difficult for that group of people when the financial crisis rolled around to, you know, to start spending heavily again because they associated that sort of activity with trouble. So there's a reluctance to hit the, the Great Recession really hard and try to reverse it quickly. As a result, I think the establishment of policymakers out there in the world decided that the pain of that period lasted longer than it needed to. So this time, with the pandemic, they're like, okay, we learned that we can actually do a lot more than we thought and not get punished by the bond markets. <laughs> so people did that um, across the board. And it was definitely part of the reason we could have a, a long debate about, you know, how to weight the various things that, uh, that contributed to the inflationary surge that we ultimately saw. But instead of holding back, basically every government in the world with the wherewithal to spend some money did so. Mm. And that just created a tremendous uh, burst of, of economic activity. So we never really had the kind of fall that we saw a decade and a decade and a half ago around the uh, Great Recession because the government so quickly put a floor under the collapse of the economy. Yeah, And that meant that households and businesses were essentially ready to go the moment things started to turn around. And of course, they, they turned around the moment that health authorities decided it was okay to start letting people go back to stores and offices and, and uh, restaurants and what have you. So as a result, the rebound was bigger and stronger than anything anybody could have imagined heading into that period. So that resulted in perhaps the delay in, in closing the taps and in, in resuming raising interest rates back to a, to a more normal setting. In retrospect, you would have liked to have thought that maybe some people could have made those calculations, could have recognized that this wasn't quite the same as the Great Recession. And so while one lesson from that period was that, you know, we can do more and, and end these economic downturns much faster, at the same time, we need to be ready to let off the gas much quicker. But instead, they decided just to sort of attack it, attack, attack, attack until they were confident the problem was, was solved and they attacked a little too long, it seems, in retrospect. Huh. I think that calculation could have been made on a theoretical basis and could have been primed to end stimulus faster. But again, that's mostly um, an assessment made with hindsight. It's not like I was writing columns during all of this saying, oh, this is about to get out of control. So. But I think, you know, the lesson probably from this one will be that, okay, we've learned that zero interest rates and government deficits can can put us in a place where recessions don't become, make the pain go away relatively quickly. But we need to be a little swifter, a little more agile in how we calibrate the return to normal time. Yeah, yeah. Tiff Macklem is our Bank of Canada governor now. And I'm just kind of curious if you know much about where he was in 2008, where he was in the 1970s these sort of critical times that people are drawing on lessons to figure out what's happening now. Right. So in the 1970s, 
Governor Macklem would have been finishing up his doctorate in economics. And by the time that episode peaked in the early 80s, he had joined the Bank of Canada as a young researcher. And he was, in fact, a part of the team that did a lot of the formative research around the Bank of Canada's decision to adopt inflation target. So Governor Macklem is, is invested in inflation targeting regimes. It's, it's essentially what he knows, which is on the margins, at least probably a reason why he's not going to uh, do anything that, that goes against what uh, he and the people around him decided they figured out back in the early 80s. During the financial crisis, he was on the front lines as well, mostly from his position at the finance department. The, the easiest way to, to describe it, we don't get bogged down in, in bureaucratic titles. He was essentially the, the finance department's uh, top diplomat. So he was the guy out at the G20 meetings, G7 meetings, IMF meetings, talking to all the other finance ministers in the world, trying to sort out what was going on and how they were going to collectively respond to all this. So he's he was deeply affected by a period as well, and he spent a lot of time in the years after thinking about how government should be responding to financial crises. He's thought a lot about responding to crises. Now, the one th thing about this episode, of course, is that, that he wasn't actually in place at the Bank of Canada when they, when they executed most of the policies that, that they put in place to fight the, the pandemic recession. But he was, he's the guy that was in place to decide when to ease up on those programs. And, and I guess, you know, retrospective, he's even conceded himself that maybe they were a little slow to, to respond. And at the risk of, of becoming pop psychologists, maybe that decision to wait was informed by his experience during the financial crisis. You know, he said to me in interviews, it was a, it was a difficult time for him and his colleagues because they would wake up every day kind of with that uncomfortable feeling of knowing that things were really, really bad, that things could go terribly bad at any moment. Wow. But, uh, but walking around downtown Ottawa or Toronto or wherever and seeing that the, the general public just had no idea on how bad things could be, like inside the banks or, or what wow. have you. And he, he talked about that as kind of a, 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 something that marked him. So project that into a position of influence of power now when the next crisis rolls around and just says to me that he does take this very seriously. And probably at that moment when we still weren't sure what was happening, we still thought that we could be dealing with, with an event that was similar to the Great Depression in magnitude, you know, that he then decided to err on the side of making sure the economy didn't entirely collapse, you know, like He's a human, so no doubt his experience is, is informing what he's doing now. We're raising interest rates right now to get inflation under control. The criticism I've heard of this is that what started inflation was these supply chain hiccups. You know, the virus in some part of the world shutting down factories and then, you know, mismatch between supply and demand that a lot of companies got it wrong and then they didn't have the workforce to match their supply with demand, which was higher than they expected. And that raising interest rates is basically just going to hurt the economy and hurt the most vulnerable people. Is there any argument that we should just not be raising interest rates, that we should just, central banks should just be sitting this one out? The answer to that question is, is yes. There's, a, there's an argument that the central banks should, should be more sensitive to, to what higher interest rates are going to do to the broader economy and, and therefore the people most, most at risk in broader economic shifts. That's, that's the counter argument to those who don't think the Bank of Canada is doing enough. They worry that the Bank of Canada is to overcompensate for missing the, the, the burst of inflation earlier. They're going to sort of try to catch up by, by overdoing it now and 
they'll end up punishing too many people for the sake of achieving their inflation targets. So yeah, there's a good argument. It's a delicate balance, as the governor himself said this week. You know, these are very difficult decisions, and uh, I don't profess to know what the right shift is. What I do try to interpret is where the central banks are coming down on that question, and their marching orders are to keep inflation under control. So they're going to do that to the extent that they can, and that's why I say that those, at least in the political classes, that worry about what you know the effects of this might be on less privileged households, on the economy generally. Well, they have the levers, they have the power to to do something about that if they want to. And I kind of think at this stage that that's really where the, the onus should lie. The central banks are here to control inflation and that's what they're trying to do. Might they overdo it? Yeah, they might. They might have done they might have overdone it already. The question is what can be done or what should be done to offset what interest rates are doing to the economy right now. And of course there are things that uh, that can be done to offset that. The problem is that we've we've seen that whether it's political uh, deadlock as a result of uh, these partisan divides that uh, that have opened up uh, over the last decade or so, whether it's public complacency when it comes to kind of policies that could be put in place, I'm not sure exactly what it is, but there are policies that we could do to offset what monetary policy is doing. We were slow to do it during the sort of the era of of zero interest rate policy. We're happy to watch uh, housing prices surge out of control. And as a result, that's a, a lot of reason that people are feeling so much pain today. But we didn't do that. Well, there are things we could do today to make the economy more competitive despite higher interest rates. And I guess we'll see whether political class has the wherewithal to make any of those choices now or do any of those things. Fiscal update coming up this fall. We're told uh, there will be a, a new federal budget in the spring. Mm-hmm new budget season in all the provinces, you know, I, I think this is a moment for the for the politicians to step up. But huh. what we're seeing so far is uh, a lot of finger pointing and those fingers are seem to be universally directed at the central bank. You know, we've just for some reason reached a point where we're just asking too much of the central banks. <laughs> and I think that's kind of happening again. We're too quick to lionize the central banks for getting us out of the financial crisis a decade or so ago. And now we're probably too quick to blame them for everything that we feel is starting to go wrong now in the economy, when again, all they're doing is their job. So the hard decisions should be made by the politicians in a democracy, and uh, I think it's kind of time for them to do it. Yeah. You traveled to Ottawa to report on the Bank of Canada's interest rate hike earlier this week, and you've done that many times in the past. I was sort of curious what, what the scene was like compared to previous trips you've made. Hmm, that's, a, that's an interesting question, Gay. I wasn't expecting that one. Oh. Um, <laughs> but but it's a good one, and it's like and it's something I talked about a lot with with people I was there. It's interesting how the the city's changing a bit. You know, I'll tell you one thing. Like you know, when you're on the roads, you go in search of a restaurant, and the restaurants were all surprisingly full for Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights. Huh. Why exactly? I'm not sure. Probably has something to do with that pent up demand that we were talking about earlier in the conversation. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it has something to do with the new cadence of of office work right so the days in the office are now almost celebratory i mean these are the one one day a week or two days a week that you get back together with your colleagues so there's a little extra incentive there to to get out and go for dinner or get some drinks right i was talking about this with some restaurant owners while i was in town just was such an odd thing they observe some of that too now you know, at the same time, we're talking about Ottawa. 
in recent years at least, a downtown that revolved around the federal government, of course, and then more recently Shopify, which put its headquarters down in Ottawa. So when you had those two institutions, if you could say, you think back to then, I mean, downtown Ottawa was on fire. I mean, people everywhere and all kinds of things going on. Now, of course, Shopify has gone full work from home. Mm. Government's kind of like in a, in a weird in-between phase. So there's not the density of traffic that I remember being in Ottawa, say, three or four or five years ago. Hmm. But it feels like it turned into more of a quality than quantity approach to at least making money in the downtown Ottawa core and that good restaurants, good bars that people actually want to go to seem to be doing pretty well. And those that sort of just relied on, you know, that office lunch crowd are doing less well. They're even still there. But bottom line, things seem to be okay in Ottawa. I mean, there's still some cranes. We're finding a new equilibrium, I think. It's not the go-go times that we got used to in Canada around the, the housing boom that came with zero interest rates. That's clearly coming off. We're about to learn the extent to which we, we become dependent, reliant on all that activity around housing. But uh, there's still money out there in the economy. There are reasons to invest that money. I mean, we're in the middle of this extraordinary shift to a digital economy and shift to sort of a, a new source of, of energy. I mean, all this stuff is going to require investment. All this stuff is going to require people to, to get involved and train up and get better jobs or get attracted to new companies that are popping up to take advantage of these various shifts. So, so there's no reason to, I don't know, get over worried about, about a recession or to think things are going to go totally off the rails. Right. But things are definitely going to slow down. and so. But I guess I'm not sure that the inflection point is as dependent on monetary policy as some people think it is. The like inflection point is more about the extent to which Canada is going to jump on this opportunity, these trends that we're seeing, and uh, take advantage of them or overthink the level of interest rates and use those as a, as a signal whether to, to cower or you know, to stash a, a bunch of money in the bank. So I know I'm the guy who writes about monetary policy every couple of weeks. But I'm more interested, really, these days about the signals around these, this disruption or these these technological shifts that we're seeing, um, because these are trends that are going to last a long time. Unlike the interest rates, where we're probably getting closer to the end of that cycle, we're still in the early stages of, of the cycles that are going to guide how how money is, is spent on the, the energy transition and the shift to the digital economy. So still opportunity there to get on those trains, but we wait too long. I think uh, obviously a risk that Canada ends up getting left behind. Then we watch the, the real returns, the real wealth is generated from these shifts, shifts go elsewhere. Most remarkable. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing so much valuable reporting and insights on this. Oh, thanks, Gabe. Anytime. And uh, I'm just going to thank you for the great work you're doing. That was Kevin Carmichael, the editor-in-chief of the Financial Post and a longtime business journalist who has covered the economy, central banks, and monetary policy. Thank you for listening to Down to Business and sharing episodes on social media or however that happens and or rating us on your podcast app. We appreciate all your support. Thanks as well to the team behind Down to Business. Bryce Hall composed and performed the original music on the show, designed the logo, and executive produced the episode. Pamela Heaven, Noella Ovid, and Victoria Wells provided web support and editing. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return next week with another episode. Until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com.